Hey everyone, and welcome to the Tulare Church Podcast. We'd like to take a moment to thank you for engaging in our content as we seek to help others grow in their relationship with Jesus. We hope and pray these sermons and talks will inspire you to take your next step in your faith journey. Thanks for listening, and have a great rest of your week. If we were going to summarize this little book in a couple of words, I think it would be love with all your might and resist everything with which you're tempted. Second John is the shortest, the second shortest book in the New Testament in the English version. In the Greek version, it is the shortest ver- uh, book. It has 245 words in the Greek text, and that's it. In this writing, the one John is obviously going to be the writer, but he is going to encourage everybody to love God the Father, love Jesus the Son, and to love each other deeply while resisting the deceivers and the antichrists of their day. These disciples are continued told to continue to walk in the truth. We'll have more to say about that in a minute. You shall know the truth, Jesus said, and it's the truth that sets you free. They will also learn to continue love. Uh, they will learn to continue loving one another. It's a process, is it not? I mean, I'm the only one in here that's really easy to learn to love. But the rest of you know, we have to work sometimes at learning to love one another. Then finally, be on your guard against false teachers. This was a real problem in John's world, and it really hasn't changed. Satan never changes his tactics. Someone said he only changes the cover with each generation in in an attempt to make it new. The major purpose of this letter is going to be to expose the theological, that which is related to God, the moral, and the social errors of the Gnostic teachers. And there are many. We'll look at a couple when we get down a little further in the text. I want us to go back to 1 John chapter 4. This is important for us to keep in mind. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how we can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. We spent quite a bit of time on that in 1 John, and we're not going to go back, except I want to see, I want us to see these commands, these edicts from John. He says, don't believe every person you hear. Then he says, test them to see whether they're from God. That sounds fair, right? One thing I always appreciate, I've I've noticed it since the first time I was here. Rusty sits here and doesn't just take the fact that I put these things on the screen as being fact. 
Now, I think Rusty trusts me. But in order to keep trusting me, Rusty looks those up. Now, he doesn't every time, but you do most of the time. And I appreciate that. It's, it validates something. It means what? I need to test to see what's true. Many false prophets. Many, many, many false prophets. By the way, this is a good place to bring this in. Prophets are used in two ways. There was a time in the Old Testament when prophets did a lot of foretelling or predicting. And, but they weren't always, the word wasn't always used that way. But by the time you come to the New Testament, prophets are not people that are foretelling, but they are more preachers. So you test to see whether the, the false prophets, the false teachers have gone out in the world. Well, how can you recognize them? Well, it's easy. Every spirit, every person that acknowledges that Jesus came in the flesh is from God. I know he's talking about the Gnostics because they denied this. Then every spirit that does, that does not acknowledge Jesus is from God, that spirit is Antichrist. Uh, a brief comment. I said I wasn't going to go back, but a brief comment. Antichrist is not a big deal. It's anyone that is antichrist. You know, people look for an antichrist to appear. And I've seen these elaborate charts. I used to get one that a guy every month spent hours putting this thing together in Photoshop to try to explain when the antichrist has come. The antichrist has already come. Anyone that opposes Jesus is antichrist. Clearly, some teachers are of God, and they taught what the apostles gave them. In our text, when he says of God and not of God, it's a clear distinction. It's not hard. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That would have been a question to ask. If they said yes, thumbs up. If they said no, thumbs down. Gnostics have not gone away. In John's day, I'm referring to first, but the thought hasn't gone away. But in John's day, I, I don't know when this letter was written. These were all written in the last part, probably 95, 96, first, second, third John. Some say this was the first letter. I don't know. I really don't know. But the Gnostics have not gone away. What is it that the Gnostics valued above everybody else? As they were trying to teach Christians to draw them away from the Christ, what was that which was most important to them? Knowledge. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis. They, they prized knowledge, but here's, here's a couple of things. They said knowledge revealed the material world, that in it was... Mm -hmm. That the material world, the material world was a work of evil, an evil deity. Therefore, the physical world is ungodly. Remember, we talked just briefly about they they blamed that on God the Father. He's this God of the Old Testament, and he's the one that made everything bad and created everything bad. And they said knowledge tells you that. Then the divine is to be discovered by some kind of interior search. It's not this external savior, Jesus. If you want to really find the divine, you have to search within yourself. 
books like the uh, um, Epistle to Mary Magdalene, the Epistle to Thomas. There's a whole host, about 52 of these were discovered. And they sound good in the title, but when you get in and read them, it's obvious they are not even close to this, closely related to anything that's inspired. I want to summarize this whole thing. We, we, we read it, so I want to try to do it, and then we're going to come back and look at it verse by verse. John calls these people my little children. It's an endearing term. John spells out how they should respond to those who do not acknowledge Jesus. He wants that to be really clear. And thirdly, John instructs what the believer's response to the person who is preaching the gospel of Jesus. All right. Who's the elder? Whoever wrote 1 John wrote 2 John. Whoever wrote 2 John wrote 1 John. Hope, presbyteros, an older man. Yeah. Who's the chosen lady? I think it's not explained in any way in the text. I couldn't find it anything related to here, anything from the book of Ephesians, anywhere related at all. I think it's a personification of a congregation just like this one right here in the city of Tulare. Personification, remember, is a figure of speech in which inanimate objects are given human qualities. It's not uncommon at all. In fact, about the only way that I know that the church has ever talked about is in terms of a woman. Let's look at three of them real quick. The Bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. You want to know who that is? That is the church. He will make that so clear in there that if you can see through a ladder, you can find that one. I'm jealous of you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Way over at the end of the book, uh, the Bible, Revelation 21.9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So the chosen lady, I believe, is a personification of the church. In the context, it won't work to say that this is a wife or a woman. Why? Because John could hardly refer to his personal love for a lady and her children and say, well, that's what we heard from the beginning. In the context, it won't work. All right, verse 1. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but all who know the truth. The elder, as John refers to himself, probably indicates an advanced age. Someone says, well, maybe he's a shepherd in the church. Possibly, but there's no evidence that John was ever married. And one of the qualities that's necessary for one to be a shepherd in the church is to have a wife. So maybe he's giving dignity to the letter. Maybe he's giving something, you know, if you get a letter from someone who's older and you've known that person, it has, it adds significance to what they have to say. His love and his concern for his children never decreased. In fact, his faith in Christ has only gotten stronger. When Rome will finally say, you know, we're tired of hearing from you, we're going to banish you to the Isle of Patmos, we're going to remove from you 
all of the fellowship that you enjoyed. And what happens to John? And on the Lord's day, whammo, he gets this vision from God and he begins to write down the book of Revelation. You cannot isolate God's people ultimately. John is so opposed to the Gnostics because what they teach is eternally destructive. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you have absolutely nothing in your life to stand on that's worth living. John introduces himself in the third person. All right, the elder, and then he changes the first person. Let, let's read it. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only. I, it sounds strange in some ways, but I'm told it's very common in the Greek language. John is probably addressing a congregation of Christians that are intent on being faithful. That's what we intend, right? We want to be faithful. We can't be perfect. If we were perfect, we didn't need Jesus. But since we can't be, we can be faithful. Husbands can be not, cannot maybe be all things, but they can be faithful. The wife can be faithful. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you what? The crown of life. He's looking for faithful people. So in the midst of all of these antichrists, in the midst of all of these people who are trying to deceive them and say, I have that virgin birth never happened that jesus son of god isn't real they're holding on to the truth has our world changed very much what is it people today would like to erase jesus you know if you if you can erase jesus you can get rid of the virgin birth you can get rid of the resurrection you can get rid of all those things that are legs on which we stand Whom I love in the truth. It's not a casual connection John has with these people. At least that's not how he describes it. John feels at one with these people because of love and truth. It's the truth that motivates, that motivates the connection to love, to the chosen lady and her children. It's the truth that motivates our relationship here today. Most of us would not even know each other. We wouldn't have any contact at all. Were it not for the truth, in the relationship with Christ. The fact that God so loved us. If you've been in the church a half a dozen times or grew up in it, you understand John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That love debt is to every single individual, every one of you. First John 4, 1, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Why do you think John has, keeps repeating this idea about love? I mean, they got the first letter, didn't they get it? Probably not any more than I got. I was raised in a loving home, but I don't think I understood 
the intensity of the love of Jesus. I don't think I understood always the agape kind of love. God so agaped us. He so loved us when we were absolutely horrible to be around. We ought to love one another. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father but loves his, ch his child as well. That's true, isn't it, in real life? I, I want to go back to something, and I, I hesitated, but this is real important. If John's willing to spend time on love, I want to try to illustrate it again. If you were here, probably got some of this. What we're going to read here is a man who's, who's going to the temple in Jesus' day to offer a sacrifice. That sacrifice could be a praise sacrifice. By the way, that's how they praise God officially. They praise God in a way today that our society frankly can't wrap their arms around at all. But they sacrifice, the sacrifice was praise. So if I had a sacrifice and I take it to the priest, now listen, therefore if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go be reconciled to your brother and then what? Then come and offer your gift. So if you remember you have something against your brother, that's not what it says. It says if you think, man, my brother's got something against me. God says, I don't want your singing. I don't want your praying. I don't want your gifts. Keep your money. Keep it all. If you're not right with your brother, leave your gift. Don't think you can praise me until you're right with your brother. Church, it doesn't get any bigger than this. If that verse were just applied to our society, we would live in a totally different planet. Now, but I, I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. You ever spoken an idle word? Yeah, sadly. I try to remind myself of this. I read it in my Bible because a lot of times it's easy when I have time to think about what I want to say, Joel, and I can have time to tweak it and work it. But in those moments when I don't, so easy to let my tongue get loose. Remember, the tongue is a what? It's a raging fire. I can change a relationship with one word. And a glance. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. This shows to me a high regard that he has for truth. The mutual love is a command for all of us. This is something that we must have toward each other. It's not an option. It's not, well, gee, I think I can get by with this. You cannot get by with it at all. John is not the only apostle to write about relationships in the church. Who do you think that would be? Well, it would be Peter, wouldn't it? Love the brotherhood of believers. Man, that's a blanket full. I mean, 
I can love Adam. We can sit down and talk about anything and work anything out. But of the brotherhood of everybody, all those stinkies, I mean, sorry, all those other people. I've read over this so many times that it makes me want to read and just say, I must have a one minute pause. Love the brotherhood of believers. Why? Because we're all on a journey to the same place. We all need the same help. This is how we know that love, agape, is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, I put this in here, but for there's a purpose. So keep that in mind as I read this next one, all right? Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus now shows them the full extent of his love. Well, what is that? Surely the next words in the text must be, and he went to the cross and was nailed to the cross and shed his blood for our sins. Surely that would be described as the full extent of his love. Well, let's see. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. No doubt Jesus knows where he's going. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Who normally had that job? We may see a servant, but in reality, it would be a slave. So you can read the rest of the account. There's a bunch of hubbub about, she ain't doing this to me. Here's what Jesus says, though. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I remember as a kid going to some foot washing. Have you ever been to any of those? Some of you are old enough to know. Uh, uh, here's the point I want to make from all this. Jesus is serving. I'm not in any way making light or re reducing the significance or if, if, if I could, his death upon the cross. Listen closely. Jesus serves his disciples as a slave. The whole idea is service, service, service. He's been doing that to the whole world around him. He's been doing it to everybody. But finally, to these 12 people, he finally gets down and tries to drive a point. Do you understand what I've done? Now, it could be that you and I, it's possible we could be asked to lay down our life for one another. But I'm going to tell you what is absolutely a fact is that he intends for us to serve each other. That's the point. Do you understand what I've done? You see, Jesus served, served, gave, gave, served, served, gave. So when it comes down to the end of time and they're going to brutally nail him to the cross 
That's just the next step. I'm not saying I'm not saying he liked it, and I'm not saying it was easy. He cries out, God, I don't want to die. But if you served everybody and you've given up everything you have to everybody, is that last step of dying going to be any greater task? So when I read later on my life, I probably won't be, I probably won't have to have my life for Steve Tillery. I don't even have to do that. So I can ignore Steve. Really? Really? I hope we can keep this in mind every time we read not only in 2 John, but anywhere else about love. We understand love is the biggest thing to God. I am not going to have this relationship with God if I do not have this relationship worked out. All right. Verse 2, I want to read verse 2, but to do that, I want to tie it with verse 1. The elder to the chosen lady, dear children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be in us forever. I don't know where it's been all my life, Dale, but I read that for the first time this week. I mean, because of the truth which lives in us, and it's not going away. Apostolic truth was intended to be the permanent guide to a believer's life. It's not subject to evolution. Now, we will become more mature in our love as we grow in our relationship with God and with each other. But there's not going to be a, some new edition of love, you know, printed. It's already done. It's already displayed. Can't beat the one we just looked at. But the word of the Lord, Peter says, stands forever. And this is that which we've preached to you. Why does it, why does it stand forever? <laughs> because it's the essence of Jesus. You got to get rid of that. You got to get rid of Jesus. Everything that he said, everything that's written in here is from God. Stay with me. John's statement is that Truth lives in us, present indicative sense, the one that I love. That means they'd come to know truth, and it has now become a permanent part of them. It's not going anywhere. Is that good? I think so, because it stabilizes our life to know that truth will not disappear. Our world thinks that whole idea is nuts. They want truth that's comfortable, which is rare. The Gnostics had inc incorrectly assumed that truth is fluid. This will date me, all right? Watch it wiggle, see it jiggle. Who am I talking about? Jello! You put jello in, I know I, I didn't do as good a job as the little kids did, but. The point of it is, is what? Jello will mold in anything. You know, you put jellos over here and jellos over there. You can put it in the cup. You can put it, you can make it look like a star. Jello just, it's just fluid. And that's how they look at truth. Absolute truth can never be compromised. We need to make sure that we're standing on absolute truth and not Jerry's opinion 
or Jerry likes this custom. There's some truth worth dying for. There's other truth that's not worth getting upset over. The eternal nature of God's truth assures us that the Bible text will forever remain unique in doctrine and practice. Now, there's a judge who, there, there is a judge for the one who rejects me, Jesus says, and does not accept my words. That very word which I have spoken to him will condemn him in the last day. This, this is what I read for. The other is important, but this is what I came for. For I did not speak of my own accord. This is Jesus, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say. Where have I been all my life? I knew the first part of it and just ignored the next two verses. Jesus said, everything that I've said, God gave it to me, and he gave me the how to say it. Saying he said, now you, what does Jesus know? He knows what it's like to be divine. He knows what it is like to be God, but he's emptied himself totally. And he relied on God. Jesus is very clear. That the word will be what will judge men. Now that should make it fairly easy, right? I know, I know people look at this book and they go, but you know, bazonkers. I can't even find a word. They go crazy. It's too big. It's not. It's not really that big a deal. If you study, you read, you share. So it's not like I don't have anything. You know, every time I always took a driving test, I thought, gee, I wish I had that earlier. I didn't know a lot better on it. I didn't know the answers. Well, guess what? We got the answers. And they're not a burden. In fact, they relieve my burden. Why will this word be used to judge all men? Jesus said, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. What does the word sanctify mean? Well, if I split this church here and said, you're sanctified from this side. Real easy. Means set apart. I'm looking at people who are set apart today from the world. How are you set apart? By the word. <clears throat> Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. I will stop. Read it too fast. I mean, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. What are grace, mercy, and peace? Well, the typical ways that apostles addressed a letter to a church somewhere. What does it mean? Grace is defined as unmerited favor. It is when the undeserving, me, gets something that I don't deserve. It's mercy. That's why when some of the people cried out after Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David, what were they asking for? I need you to give me something that I cannot give myself. Mercy. It's the flip side. 
when I don't get what I deserve. When I didn't hear the shh of my daddy's belt, that was mercy. Well, I had it coming. But, you know, my daddy wasn't a beater. But he knew how to drive rebellion out of me. Or he worked at it. So mercy is when I don't get what I deserve. And then peace. Oh, the cessation of hostility. Every night I get on the computer and I type in some places to try to see what's going on in Ukraine. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be marvelous if tomorrow morning cessation of all hostilities would stop? Peace would be ushered in? You see, this is what happens to us. God was hostile toward us. Why? Because we had everything coming to us. But because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, all hostility stopped when I became a disciple of Christ. My job now, it's a challenging one, but not impossible to live faithful unto death. You know, the older we get, in some ways, the easier that is. We have much longer. You, only, you can only beat it so long, right? All right. So love and truth are just as important as grace, mercy, and peace. And here's the last statement. Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and in love. What a marvelous thing. You know, sometimes, I don't know what you're going through, or when, it, when you go through it, you, you feel like you just, you've had it. Guess what happens when that comes? Just got to pause for a moment and say, Jesus is with me. He is with me in truth. He's with me in love. How do I know? Just, just close your eyes and get the picture of the cross. Get the picture of him serving, not just his disciples, but all the people who cried out, have mercy. That same Jesus is still offering grace and mercy and peace. And if you're here today and you need to take advantage of that, you know what that means, we'll help you. If you're not and you want to talk about it, talk with us. We, we don't bite. We all have the same problem. If I were to be honest this morning when I got in here, I would have said to you, I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. And so are we all. But if you're not in Jesus, you can be in him. You can have a relationship with him and, and, and walk in a life of peace. If we can serve you, let us know while we stand and sing. Mark the voice of Jesus. <laughs>
Ordinary Church Podcast. If you have questions, feel free to send us a text at 559-224-4883, drop us an email, or reach out to us on our Instagram or Facebook page at Tulare.Church. Have a great rest of your week, and God bless.